This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity, and I'm Pat Hazel. On this episode, I'm joined by three-time Oscar winner for Best Animated Feature and the Chief Creative Officer of Pixar. It's Pete Docter, writer and director of Inside Out, Up, and Soul. He shares the importance of keeping a sense of play in your work and how making flipbooks as a kid helped him realize he was a very good storyteller. Coming up momentarily is my soul brother and frustrated cribbage player, Pete Docter. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, or captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La, 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 la. I'm still convinced you just made up all the cribbage rules. They're just so <laughs> arbitrary, I don't understand. But I'm, I'm figuring it out. I understand. Well, here's the funny thing. My grandfather taught me cribbage growing up, and whenever somebody even slightly has an interest, I dive into teaching them. And then I'm the authority. At no, that they point. don't want to. Wait, stop. I don't want to uh, stop. No. And I remember when I was teaching you that one thing in cribbage you have to do a lot is you have to do a lot of adding of the numbers and the tricks and stuff. Yeah, and you're I'm like, I hate math. You're like, I hate <laughs> the math, which, which yeah. surprises me because it seems to me, and I might be wrong, but in animation, there's a lot of math. Am I right? Well, that's why we have computers, though. They do all that math stuff. You know, you type it in and, uh, okay, I lived in Denmark in fifth, this is what I blame it on. In fifth grade, my parents, my dad took a sabbatical. And so I missed all the multiplication tables and, and stuff. So, so as soon as you get to like that hardwired stuff, it's not there. It's not in my brain. So man, it has endless fun ribbing me about that. That's, that's the main topic of discussion when we play cribbage. Well, your wife, Amanda, is a great game player. She's pretty good. Occasionally, yeah. she'll text me about a rule or an extra point or something. Yes. Like, she's fierce. So, yes. I'll give her yes. that. But let's talk about the importance of play since we're talking about cribbage. I mean, with the group of folks we I met you through, mm-hmm. we have done all kinds of crazy game playing, yard games and knife throwing and all of that kind of stuff. But the importance of play in creativity. Tell me what your take is on that. I mean, yeah, it's an interesting point because I, I was thinking about, okay, we're going to talk about creativity. What is creativity? Uh, it's basically playing. It's the same thing you did like when you were seven and your friend comes over and you're like, all right, you're going to be the, the, the guy who's robbing the bank. And then I'm going to come in and let everybody like assumes, you remember you do like bad accents, but the really <laughs> good, the, the people who are, you're playing with who are really good, they don't care. They just go with it, you right. know? And that's kind of part of the thing. Like whatever you're doing, you just have to embrace it 100%. And, you know, I remember uh, working on Toy Story. We would do voices. We, that's how we came up with scenes. We were just like, hey, hey you know, Mr. Potato Head. And, and, <laughs> and then they would talk to Rex or whatever. And, and uh, that's, they, the characters would kind of write themselves that way because you're just goofing off, having a good time. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think the idea of freedom, and once you 
it, there must be a different pressure at the point that it becomes your job because when you're doing it young and when you're doing it uh, playfully thinking oh one day right yeah. but when it's like every day come up with a new thing do you feel or do you you know do you find that there's a different kind of pressure on playing yeah sometimes i mean you know what it's like when when somebody pays you suddenly the dynamic shifts you know like i was doing this for fun for uh, just cuz i like it and now oh okay so now you're paying me that means i have to deliver that means a certain amount of pressure i don't know it's it's it is an interesting but you know most of the time you try to ignore that and just have a good time i think that's where the best stuff comes in the in the early days of writing on seinfeld when it was before it was on the air it was called the seinfeld chronicles and there huh. were four of us uh, matt goldman larry david jerry and myself we were in a room that was you know provided by castle rock that was a fairly antiseptic office nobody ever hung any pictures like you weren't going to live there. You weren't coming back to that office. You were just going <laughs> to write this thing. That's and, where the good stuff happens. Well, you, you get fancy, balls, it's all downhill. Right. I know. You get too comfortable, right? Yeah. They take it away from you. But the interesting thing is we would, we're, we're comedy writers. We're joke writers. We're writing a sitcom. We would stare at the walls and the blank page all morning. And mm-hmm. then it was like, oh, it's lunch. Let's go to lunch. We get so excited about going to lunch. And then yeah. we would be at lunch and every we talk about everything and larry david would say i don't feel confident in tan pants and we're like that's the episode right yeah I, you know it did you at lunch right and then we would race back and write down the lunch stuff right yeah you know? yeah that, that happened to us too we, we went to this restaurant now gone hidden city in point richmond where pixar used to be and they had tablecloths that were just paper they would rip out a piece <laughs> of paper and that thing by the end of lunch would just be full of all sorts of stuff and you're right more ideas came from from good food it's good food well you know eat is right in the middle of create i don't know if you've ever noticed that <laughs> no <laughs> that's what point. i focus on mm-hmm. um, but but also the incubation period is really vital i think to creation and i know you're a big walker like you take hikes and so forth i mean don't you find during that gestation period that stuff is coming from your i don't know if it's your subconscious or unconscious i'm sure some doctor listener will tell us but yeah, yeah. Uh, no, Don't you right. find that that's a really powerful place for, you know, things to develop? Yeah. Um, a lot of times if I'm stuck and we should come back to that idea of, of, um, of what do they call it? Writer's block. I couldn't think of the name cause I had <laughs> writer's block. I, whenever I get stuck, I feel like, and typically it's not so much stuck. It's just uncertainty. Um, and there's too many options and I don't know which way to go. I go for a walk and that's my way of just like, what happens, I realize, is my brain chews on one thing and I'll hear the same script over and over and over as I'm walking. I'm so focused on like avoiding rattlesnakes or whatever that I'm not really thinking too much consciously and it's looping this thing and ultimately I'll get some sort of clarity. And I find that that's really uh, helpful for me. And I know other people have different processes. Um, you know, I just read in a, in a John Cleese book about the time between things, like everything isn't productive, right? Yeah. That the period of time when you're eating, when the fork returns to the plate with nothing on it, <laughs> is an important part of getting the food back to your mouth, right? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. you can't skip all of those intermission parts, right? Yeah. And and I, I guess for me, I've always, I'll incubate a lot, a lot on something where I know that I'm going to do it. It's a passion project. The idea is strong enough to do but I don't just start writing dialogue about uh, then he ate breakfast and then he had a plaid shirt on, right? Like yeah. I'll take I'll take that in my day, in my other work, in my and then I, and eventually it grows so strong that I have to 
I have to sit down and then it comes yeah. quick. No, you're right. Like you read about John Lennon uh, from Beatles and he'd be like, uh, roll over, write a song and go back to sleep. You know, like he makes it sound so easy. And I, I remember working on Up with Ronnie Dale Carmen, who was our, our uh, head of story. And he could board, he could storyboard an entire sequence in hours. And then he'd go for days, weeks without really doing anything. But once it was clear in his head, it just would like flow out, you know, and I think it's kind of all, all part and parcel of the same thing of like, you need to recharge, you need to fill the batteries. And then at the right time, it comes flowing out. I heard once uh, that Leonard Bernstein it said that he got up in the morning and he wrote three bad songs to get them out of the way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and that would clear a path to a good song. Mm. But if he didn't do that, you know, if he didn't just start writing in the discipline of that, He'd mm. never get to the good song, right? So, I mean, again, I don't know. It's it's a pretty, you know, and everyone has a little trick. Hemingway apparently used to finish in the middle of a sentence when he left his writing so that when he returned, he knew where he was already starting. He wasn't going, oh, oh what do I do now, right? Oh, like, okay. I thought it was like know? improv where he's throwing <laughs> something at himself and then having to pick it up. No, I think it's just when he ended the day, he didn't complete the sentence so that Got he it. would. You know, uh, it was a momentum thing, you know. Yeah. Going back to your other thing, the uh, there's a couple of teachers I had that said they're learning to draw. You've got 10,000 bad drawings in you before you get to the good ones. So start getting, get going because you have to get rid of those to get to the good stuff. Well, let me ask a couple of other things because now you're in your business. Uh, and again, you mentioned the computers doing that math for us. Yeah. You, you were on the forefront of this digital uh, animation world, right? A feature film that was being made with a computer's assistant in collaboration, right? Yeah, but, but I just stumbled into it. I know. <laughs> I know, I but know you, you, you tripped and fell into the right place. Yeah. <laughs> yes, uh, I tripped in the right direction. Uh, but, but here's what people are taking for granted all these years later, is that when a movie is made in your camp, you're making the camp. You're making the scenery, the props, the facial expression the hair follicles the clothes the wrinkles on the clothes like you don't the decision isn't cast a couple of actors you got to build the actor and you got to yeah. build the voice so that's true there's no happy accents it's not like you can go down the street and say hey that lamp in the window looks really great it's perfect you know none of that it's all planned it's all has to be thought through and you're right like from the beginning you know even casting we we will write and design the characters before we think of who's going to be the voice. So a lot of times people are like, oh, you know, Billy Crystal looks just like Mike Wazowski. First of all, I think he would be kind of insulted by that because, you know, <laughs> Mike's only got one eye, but we cast to kind of fit the suit of what we've designed. It's backwards. It is backwards. So as a comedy writer, the first thing I do on a sitcom is I size everybody up, right? I, I oh. see the actor, I hear their voice, I start to understand their mechanics, and I write to their voice. Uh -huh. I, I say, okay, I got to learn I'm working on Seinfeld's Ferrari today or whatever. He's, he's a Porsche yeah. man. So I guess that I better say that. The interesting thing is if that's not in Kramer's voice or that's not whatever, then I'm not a good mechanic. That's when I moved on. It was because I didn't want to get too good at everybody else's voice. I needed to go back and find uh, my yeah. own. Yeah. Right? Yeah. No, that happens for us too. Like as soon as what we'd be writing, say on inside out for joy, we're kind of trying to come up with this character and figure out what makes her tick and what's her, ex what's, you know, all this. And then, you, you cast Amy Poehler and suddenly you have to go back. You have to go yeah. back and rewrite everything because it's uh, not the way she would talk. 
Well, you have so many. You've introduced me to great people at your birthday. I met uh, Louis Black and oh, he's awesome. You know, Richard Kind. There's so many voices in yeah. your films where those personalities, uh, even our friends Dave and Frank, you know, ended yeah. up in a scene together who yeah. are famously known bickerers, right? So that was the fun one. I, I brought, okay, so Frank Oz, we knew his father, and that's how kind of we got to know Frank. And he was a voice in Monsters, Inc., and we brought him back for Inside Out. And I thought, um, we gave him these lines, and I read opposite him. And he wanted to play, just going back to your original thing. And he is such a good improviser, I could not keep up. I, it was sad. So he had nothing to go with. He had nobody to play with, because I was, I was the guy criticizing the bad accent or whatever analysis you <laughs> So when we brought, I thought, wait a minute, who can I get to act opposite? What about Dave? That would be it, because he and Dave worked for years at the Muppets together. And those guys, man, you they said they hadn't worked together for like 12 years at that point. And it was amazing. They clicked right into stuff, and Dave would say some bizarre thing, and Frank would attack him, and then Dave would defend himself, and then it just, the dynamic. We wrote a bunch of stuff, but what ended up in the movie was the stuff they made up that they were just goofing around on. Right. It's so live, right? And you can feel, I can feel that in, in the scenes. You see it and you go, wow, this is an old married couple. Yeah. You know? and the funny thing was, uh, if you step back in it, we, we, they did a bunch of different things. And the way it seemed to work was Dave was the instigator. He would say something weird. But then <laughs> Frank, who was playing the part of like the dominant, I'm the boss in this relationship. He would start to try to, to, to judge and, and steer it. But Dave wouldn't let him. He was just so kind of, I don't know how to describe it. It was a really interesting dynamic that they must have developed over the course of years of working. There was a time I had a, a, a brief sitcom uh, opportunity called American Pie that I wrote based on a play that I had. And um, I cast an older actor named Everett Greenbaum. And Everett Greenbaum was actually a writer on all the original Andy Griffith show and MASH and all kinds of amazing things, right? Mm -hmm. uh, he wrote all those Don Knotts movies, the, you know, Ghost of Mr. Chicken, those things. But yeah. anyway, so he was more of a writer than an actor, but he was this great old character guy. And the comic premise of it, why I cast him was when I was a kid, I saw a sign at a Shakey's Pizza Parlor that said, it was one of those ones that's like uh, wood burned into the wood oh, yeah. that said uh, um, free pizza on your 100th birthday. Yeah. If you come with your parents yeah. <laughs> and that little plaque lived in my head for a very long time. Yeah. So I thought I want to cast a guy that could bring his parents, whatever. So I cast the oldest guy I could think of that was vital and could do this. So Everett became this character. And then I decided to play against his age and everything in every storyline was a teenage problem. Like he was in our garden center and it's like, what are you doing here all day? He goes, I'm not going home. My dad remarried, and I'm not calling that woman mother, right? <laughs> and, and everything he said was a golden gem. So on one episode, I decided he needed an older brother. And I was like, I don't know where we're going to get this dude from. Like, I don't know what, where we're going to come up with somebody older than this that's yeah. just funny. Yeah. And I asked him, I go, you got any friends? He goes, well, Bill Idelson was on uh, the Dick Van Dyke show. He played Rosemary's boyfriend, and he was a writer with me on – I go, let's go to lunch with him. And we went to Arch Deli in the Valley. Uh -huh. I mean, these two were a dream at Arch Deli. <laughs> I was like, Get, roll the cameras right now. Like, yeah. I can't. So when I said to Bill, I go, hey, you start work tomorrow. He goes, I don't want to work. Why would I want to work? I go, you have to play Everett's older brother. 
<laughs> you have to. Yeah, I just basically <laughs> beat him into it. But but the funny thing was, then I gave him the older brother responsibility jokes. Like he would come into the garden center and goes, I knew, you know, I knew you'd be here. He goes, how'd you find me? I saw your bike out in the bike rack, you know, and I just, <laughs> it was so much fun to give this stuff to these guys that I wanted to just expand their characters so much, you know? That's hilarious. It all came from that one song. It's funny how that there are things that stick in your head. Uh, I remember as a kid, we went to Disneyland and on the Jungle Cruise, and there's this one joke, and they say, we're now passing by Schweitzer Falls, named after the noted uh, uh, explorer, Dr. Albert Falls. Right. And, and we use that joke so much, just in, you know, sw switch the words around. Uh, it's a funny joke. I know. And it is interesting, because my childhood bike ride around the neighborhood, I used to ruminate about a problem, which was, I heard somebody got grounded for life and I'm thought that's not possible. Like at 16, you would get your license and leave or at 21, you'd beat up your dad. Like, how is that possible? But that three words grounded for life yeah. stayed with me until a couple of years ago when I began to write a musical, uh, with a, like, yeah, we heard some of it. It's pretty cool. Yeah. I, it was fun to share that with you, but it, but the whole premise is what if somebody was really grounded for life, right? A 35 year old guy. <laughs> Stuck in his bedroom under and his the, mom's regime. The cool thing about that idea, like a lot of things, it's absurdist and funny. And then when you dig deeper, you're like, whoa, it gets to some emotional, deep stuff in there. You know, it actually has meaning. Well, the, the funny thing is, it's kind of like Great Gardens, right? Like people do have their kid living in their basement after they <laughs> came back from college. Like yeah. it's almost terrifying. And what is it? What's the codependency of that? I, I remember that. When I sent the original play to a director, he goes, I can't direct this. This is ridiculous. <laughs> Why would the mom keep him there? And I'm like, "That you have to buy that idea. Or <laughs> I don't out. want you to direct it. Right? Like, you get out of here. <laughs> yep, you know? yep, yep. However, I have done some things that were absurd and ridiculous for other reasons. When I wrote the original play, Bunk Bed Brothers, with Matt Goldman, who was my one of my cohorts at Seinfeld, we had in that a situation where the brothers were ordering a pizza from their childhood bedroom. And I decided it would be funny if it were a live pizza being delivered by a real pizza guy. At that time, Domino's had the 30 minutes or less rule. Oh, yeah. And so I knew it was going to show up in the middle of the play. And it was just whenever the guy came, we'd skip to that scene. And then when they went away and the audience couldn't tell if it was a bad actor or, or just a, oddball pizza guy who just did, you know to me that was the joke uh -huh. a guy delivers a pizza and ends up in a broadway play like that to me is the premise of the great prank well there were directors who go we got to get rid of that that makes no sense at all i go i go that's what this dumb thing's about is fooling the audience into wondering if that guy's real or not right but we yeah. would pull a script out of the drawer and hand it to him and say you read everything in yellow that says pizza guy and then <laughs> He would have jokes. He would just read them and he would get a laugh and, and then he would kind of smile and, and we would, we would like pay him in monopoly money. And then he'd read his line that said, Hey, this is play money. And we go, Hey, this is a play, you know? And, and then that would get a laugh. And then he would kind of, we, we, our rule with the pizza places was can't send the same person twice. Right. Mm -hmm. Like we would tell the owners or whatever, send yeah. a different driver. Yeah. You know, if they wanted to come, they would be, they'd have their lines memorized. Yeah. yeah. And if they did that, if I saw somebody a second time, I'd throw the script over the set and then I'd grab a book off the shelf like 
you know, Diary Van Frank. And I go, okay, you start reading from the top. They'd go, what? What about the other lines? I'm like, you're not supposed to be back here. Right? Yeah, right. <laughs> if you want the part, you're going to have to show some range. You know? <laughs> uh, so uh, let's talk about the, the, in animation, there's a really interesting thing that I don't think normal people when watching movies realize, and that's sort of the art of anticipation, right? That you're drawing somewhat of a, um, a retraction in order to have somebody leap forward or, yeah. you know, describe that or explain the power or importance of an anticipation. Well, I, I mean, I learned it as an animator, uh, as a principle of motion. So if I want to move to the left, you don't just start the character boop, and move it to the left. You actually anticipate by going slightly to the right and then moving to the left. And this is true of anything. If I'm going to grab a glass of water, you don't just go boop, straight out. You, <laughs> you give it just a little bit of a, it's basically what you're doing. I mean, first of all, it's physically, that's just how it works. But also you're cueing the audience, you're preparing them for something. And I think that principle has so many different um, applications, including joke telling. You know, the whole idea with the joke is that you're leading people to either not know where you're going or ideally you think they're going somewhere else. And so as you're talking, the people are like, oh, I, I know what the punchline is going to be. And then you, bam, you surprise them by going to the other way. So I think the idea of anticipation, you know, it, it, it really applies in so many different ways. Storytelling, joke telling, movement, all the, you know, all that stuff. And animation is so much about movement, right? It's an, it's action. It's all action, right? That's. Yeah. Yeah. We were listening. My, uh, my wife uh, got going there. They did just a couple nights ago, uh, a re, uh, a re, what's it called? The uh, table read, table read of um, Princess Bride, oh. you know, with the original cast. So cool. And Wally Sean and everybody, you know, Amazing. everybody's there. And she was like, what could you, could you do that with one of your films? And then I was thinking, no, probably not because. What happens in those movies is so visual. If you just read the dialogue, you'd be like, what the heck's going on? I don't, can't tell. You know, so uh, yeah, animation really. And whenever we get into a scene where it is all dialogue, we kind of look at each other and going and, and know that we're in trouble a little bit because we're falling back on radio or something. And this is a visual medium, you know. Um, I love it personally when a lot of the short films we did years ago and that I did as a student we're all pantomime. And so when you get to scenes like, you know, we have this scene in, in Up where this guy grows old with his girlfriend and they get married and then she passes away. And that was all pantomime, no, no actual, not even sound effects. And as we were doing it, people are like, is this going to be emotional? I don't know. Maybe we need some dialogue. But there is something about stripping away things that I think makes the audience lean forward because they're bringing something. I think if you take something away, you're actually making the audience bring that, whatever that is. So you take away the sound, they're bringing it themselves. When you see those guys talking in the car, Carl and Ellie, you're the, as an audience, you start to think, what are they talking about? Or, or you see the hammer smash this jar, there's no sound effect, but the audience starts to go, oh, wait a minute, I'm a, an active participant in this. And I think it comes to life even more emotionally and stronger in their head. And I totally drifted off from the original subject, but um, hopefully that's no, still relevant. It's, it's totally fine. Here, here's what's interesting. When I wrote my show, The Wonder Bread Years, which is a nostalgic flashback, I thought a little bit about, I don't want this to be my biography. I want the audience to come on the journey. So I subtracted my age and where I grew up because I wanted them to think about their own location. And when I pick mm. family slides out, 
I want them to think of their worst Halloween costume, not mine. I yeah. want them to feel like, oh, that was so humiliating to be that, right? <laughs> um, now, now let's talk about that for a minute because you, there's also this real truth in uh, finding the universal in the specific. That if you're too vague and uh, in certain circumstances, this is what I was interested in in that one. Maybe that's not the case, but in a lot of times, like if I go to a very specific, uh, you know, the type of candy bar that I hated in, in when I went trick or treating, the Baby Ruth with the nuts. Oh, so suddenly it becomes funny if it's specific. But if I just go, oh, you know how there's always some candy that you don't like, it's not as funny. You know, what I, I agree. Mean? I agree. Specifics are very, very important. But where it comes to the audience jumping on board, sometimes, yeah. in w at least what I did in that case, was I thought, I'm trying to tap into everyone's childhood, not mm -hmm. mine. Mm -hmm. And so in, I'm talking about in the overarching writing, I decided yep. that what was valuable to me is for them to think I was a, in the group of kids they trick-or-treated with, uh -huh. meaning uh, they were participating with me. That when I opened my presents on Christmas morning and had to save the gift wrap, and my mom hung over me like a dictator, save the paper, save the paper. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted them to hear their grandmother, right? Yeah. Or yeah. their mom, bows in this bag, ribbons in this bag, right? Yeah. And that so that, that was that's a combination of a general and specific together, right? Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. I'm a big fan of specific, like I use names of people I grew up with, it's critical to me because people who say you know johnny mcjuju or whatever like it's like that's not a name yeah. what are you talking about but yeah. if i say pat mulligan's an idiot you go that's some oh, idiot somewhere, right <laughs> yeah you know yeah. i'm tom diesner i know you are like yeah. there's something about those names that yep. is familiar to the to the speaker yeah. or to the you know what i mean and you can yeah. combine them you know i would rather pick a name out of the phone book and go with a real name than for me to you know try to combine something that you know names are funny we for for toy story and and i think for nemo you know andrew stanton who uh is a great writer and, and director he he named a lot of the guys very clever like ham you know that it's like sort of a name but it also alludes to what they are or, right. or uh, you know like marlin is a kind of a fish etc right. i i like that i'm a fan of that in particularly when it's crafty you know i tried to go the opposite way on monsters where it's like it's a big hairy monster named George Sanderson, you know, right. and I just thought that was funny. It Maybe was. the 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 joke made them sound funny. less scary too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Let's talk about. I think Monsters Inc. is a good place to jump in, even though you mentioned this a little bit earlier when you were talking about the sequence in Up being pantomimed. Is that particular sequence really engaged the emotion of understanding Carl's backstory, and mm -hmm. that's why we cared about his previous relationship with Ellie, you know, his spouse and all of that, I feel right. like the caring part is something that makes the heart of these films work. And I think in Monsters, Inc., you had probably, you were, that was a direct, was that an early directing job for you there? Or? That was my first thing, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and that's something that, you know, since Toy Story, I don't know where he got this from, but Stanton, the guy I was mentioning, would just say, make me care, make me care. So we'd write these scenes. It was clever. It was funny, or maybe not. Maybe it was just a bunch of stuff happening, and and it would always come down to like, do I care? Which is so easy to say and so hard to do. Um, and and the answer is going to be different in every time. Maybe it's the fact that 
it's a suspense thing, you know, maybe, you know, this character knows something the other guy doesn't. And it's only a matter of time till he lets him, or maybe it's a humor thing. Maybe it's just the fun of two characters talking. Maybe it's, you know, it's different every single time. So this idea of make me care, it's, uh, I, I would grow to hate Stanton because he would say that. <laughs> and, and, and yet it's so hard to actually do. I know. And it's, it's cr like, even in a 30 second commercial, if I'm directing something, yeah. then they want the product front and center. I go, you can put the product wherever you want. If yeah. they don't care about the people using the product, if, if I don't show this husband buttoning the back of his wife's blouse in a caring way, then I don't care about the coffee maker. Like, yeah, I, exactly. you know, and I go, the coffee maker, you know, is what they're going to buy. But we got to open their heartstring a little bit for them to be interested in that, you know? Totally. totally. Um, yeah. Um, it's the, the start of every film. Like you, you got to, at some, within the first five, 10 minutes, you got to find some way of getting the audience to care. Now, I think one of the topics we've had a lot of discussion on is, do they have to be likable? And, uh, you know, I think that's like a Hollywood trope is like, I, I need your character to be more likable. You don't actually. And there's so many like, you know, Mad Men and uh, uh, so many examples of characters that you actually are, are despicable. <laughs> yet I enjoy watching them. And I think that's what the, the distinction is. Like, I have to like watching them. I don't have to like them. Right. I just have to be intrigued by something that they're doing. Larry David in you know, Curb Your Enthusiasm is... Yeah, that's a great example. He's the gr biggest curmudgeon, creates the biggest problems, gets himself into a pickle he can't get out of, right? And we just fall over that, right? People yeah. love and hate him for that. But, yeah. you know, there's no in-between. No, Nobody doesn't care. They either care, like, what's this multimillionaire guy doing that for? Or they're like, that's me. I'm a moron, right? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, again, no offense to morons. Yeah, yeah. Probably didn't even understand. I was insulting them. But, <laughs> um, now let's talk about collaboration because you okay. don't get to do it alone, right? A lot of people can do their job alone, but yeah. you're now, you know, you do a certain amount of your uh, story writing and so forth, but everything comes back to a team of big, you have a big, big team. Everybody's got some little part to this. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, when people sort of give me credit for something, I always feel kind of guilty because like, I didn't do any, any of this, all the stuff you see on screen, I didn't actually do like a bunch of other people did that. Uh, whether it's the acting or the lighting or, you know, just amazing group of talented, talented people. My job is just to kind of all point them in the right direction so that they are adding into something that's cumulative as opposed to a scattershot of random stuff. Um, but um, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, there is a certain amount as you're writing, there are times when I have to sequester off and just think and clear my head and be by myself. But most of the time, even the writing is, is a collaborative effort. You'll sit and talk with a bunch of people and go, what about this? No, no. Yeah, oh yeah. Or, or this. And, and so, you know, there's the yes and thing and all that stuff where you're always buying into it and trying to move it forward. And at the same time, be critical and, uh, uh, you know, it's funny talking to Frank Oz, he, if you, if you're a Muppet fan, you go back and look at, um, documentaries or whatever, and they're all having fun and goofing around and Frank is scowling in the corner and he's like, yeah, it's not good enough. And I also wonder like, how did that work that he's so funny, uh, and yet such seemingly like a killjoy on set. <laughs> It's, uh, you'll have to ask him about that. I will. Yeah. I mean, you know what? I've noticed that in a conversation sometimes he will take the contrary position so yeah. that in a way it challenges you to stand your ground on your point. That came from his father. His dad would, I know 
like we would have a conversation one day about something and he would strongly voice an opinion. And then a week later, we'd have the same conversation and he would take the other position <laughs> just for the pleasure of the argument. I, he just loved arguing. So I, I, that, I imagine, as parents often do, uh, that was a big influence on, on Frank's argument style. Probably. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, given that you mentioned the process and all of the people and critical notes and so forth, can yeah. you talk to me about how to give and take a creative note? Huh. Well, something uh, Seth Barish said really stuck with me. He's another one of these guys that we've met, Pat and I met in this group. And uh, he said, you know, instead of saying, I like this, I don't like this, what he, the way he addresses it is, okay, what I'm getting from this is this guy is confused. He doesn't know what's going to happen next. Is that what you intended? And you go, whoa, wait a minute. No, I was hoping that he was melancholy or sad or whatever, you know. So a lot of times just kind of pointing out the way you read something will cause the person who's writing it and putting it together to kind of reassess. And that that's all, all you need to kind of say. Um, but whenever I can, I, and I think this is kind of part of that, um, falls under the same umbrella of giving notes that will help the person get there themselves, you know. Um, because if I come in and believe me, it's temptation because it's fun. I want to come in and solve all the problems. Like, hey, here's an idea. This is going to be great. And it, unless they're part of it, it doesn't, you know, I've been on the receiving end of that. It's not as fun. I want to play too. Right. <laughs> and there is a process as a director, as an actor, that they there's a discovery period. Yeah. And you really do have to let that, that and, happen. And, and if everybody can be part of that discovery, then everyone is, is co-parent, you know, of the right. idea instead of just, uh, you know, being given it. So. I think that's important. I remember directing an actor in, in Milwaukee once who I wrote a line that I liked and I wanted to keep. And he said, this line is not funny at all. It will never work. <laughs> I said, you can say that all you want in rehearsal. Mm -hmm. You have to do it once in front of an audience to prove that it's not funny. Yes. So I suggest you rehearse up for that. And I will be the first guy to cut it if it's not funny. I will be, I will throw it out as soon as the show's over. But that's graduation day. You go yeah. up there and yeah. you say that line, and then you tell me afterwards if it's funny or not. And I'm telling you, he kept going, well, it's not a funny joke. I go, you know what? It's not supposed to be a funny joke. It's supposed to be an annoying comment that makes his brother think, this guy's so desperate, he's telling us. Like, I had to explain why the joke wasn't <laughs> a, a perfect joke. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I said, what you can do to protect this joke is you pause as, as long as you can pause. And th this is, I'll tell you the joke. It's not a great joke, <laughs> but it's, it, but it's between two brothers who have been all their lives jibing each other about stuff. And mm -hmm. one said to the other, um, well, I'm, I'm not, I shouldn't tell you this. Mom told me not to say anything, but you were brought up on powdered breast milk and i said the only reason that's funny and it gets funnier is the longer the pause is before <laughs> you reveal you're creating so much tension that uh -huh. the brother wants to know what what is it the mom told you not to tell me what, what what and i said to him i said i don't care how long you wait and he's like no you do i go i honestly i do <laughs> not care because what i'm looking for is not the response to your joke i want to see that other brother moving on his chair what tell me what is it what yeah, like, yeah. that's what i want and yeah, if you're yeah. if you want the punchline on your side of the stage don't tell it quickly that's 
you know? I mean, in, in stand-up, in one-man shows, there seems to be a real art. And I guess I'm interested in how this plays in animation because of the amount of time it takes you to develop something. Is that sometimes something's funny on the move when the actor's moving, and sometimes it's important they stay still. Like there's there's a whole art to that. Do I say this as a tag? Do I say this, you know, direct to camera? Do I say it off the cuff? Right. So you actually you you gotta make all those things like years in advance, you gotta decide. Or if the actor reads it differently, you gotta change the motion. Like it's it's six years to a joke. For you, wow, you, you just brought up a whole bunch of stuff there. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I think you're right. Like, take whatever uh, you want. My the editor that I've worked with, um, Kevin Nolting. There's there's sort of a tradition in animation of cutting on action. So you know, a character will start to reach out, and then you cut, and you continue that action. And the idea behind it is it makes the cut invisible. Um, he hates that. He likes to have the character reach out, pause, and then you cut. And and his philosophy is really interesting. It's that you you engage more with the character that way. That by having the movement across the cut, you create a, a kind of a distance. And I don't know if that that's not something you, you can really uh, intellectualize, but uh, it seems to work for him. It's it is, and and I think what you're pointing at is like, is it funnier to see the pie hit the guy or to see the reaction on the other guy? Like, do you imply it? Do you show it straight up? Those are all big choices that, uh, and there's no one answer, of course. Um, even even you were talking about speed of things and and milking stuff there's working with amy poehler she came in and immediately understood the need for speed in comedy and i think that is important because if i can tell where this joke is going it's not as funny as if i can be surprised by it and so when you rush through stuff and then you sock people with the punchline <laughs> it's funny and right. yet there are times as you say that you want to do the exact opposite where you create that tension and that's what the funny is and so I don't know. Um, the other thing I was going to say is um, we working with Bill Hader, he said, you got to come to SNL sometime. We're like, what, really? Are you kidding? So we did. We got to hung, hang around and watch. And the thing that amazed me most was how all of those actors committed 150%. Even if the lines, like your actor friends, like this is a dumb joke. I was thinking that for half the stuff, like this is really not working at all. They did not hesitate they were like a hundred percent in they were going to make that work and if it failed it was not going to be their fault right. and I, yeah that's good that's the way we have to work you know you have well, to they're commit. still they're still live and people forget it right at the, i mean yeah. it's different in pandemic terms but they <laughs> forget that they are, are jumping off stage and putting on a different wig and going around the corner and throwing on a different outfit you know yeah. they, they forget yep crazy um this is there's so many areas to talk to you about, but I guess I want to think about when your creativity might have changed. And that is what impact did having kids have on your thought process in storytelling? Uh, well, I mean, it immediately during I had we, Amanda and I had our first kid right before Monsters, Inc. And that really became central to the storytelling of that. If you look at it, it's basically a guy who loves his job. And then a kid comes into his life and now he doesn't know what to do with the kid at first. And then he falls in love with the kid. And then he's very protective to the point where he's willing to give up the job. And that was kind of my path uh, in, in making the film. You know, at, at first, all I had was the concept that there's a monster who scares kids for a living. That's his job. <laughs> and that was enough to get, get the sort of green light and, the, and start working on it. But as we went, real, we realized, I don't really get what this is about, you know. 
And that was confusing to me as a young writer. It's like, what's it about? It's about a monster who scares kids. Come on. Um, but I think what people were talking about and what I've been searching for ever since is like, you want every story to have some deep struggle. And that's not an easy answer. If you have a story where it's like, gee, should I be a Nazi or uh, work at the coffee shop? That's not a choice, right? You want something that's like, well, that's right. no, the, no, the real dilemma is the Nazi coffee shop, right? Like, <laughs> oh, let that stand as a joke. I think okay. that's the way yeah, But I guess my point was like, if you have a choice between a bad thing and a good thing, then that's not really a choice. You want something, a choice between two bad things or two good things. And then um, you have real drama. You have the gray area that, that presents itself, which is real life. And that's, I think, what we were looking for. Um, even on Monsters, the idea of having a kid, loving your job, you can't really do both 100% well. Like, how do you balance that? That's just an eternal struggle that doesn't have a real answer. And so um, that was the first kind of effect, I think, that having kids had. And then as as they went along, I was like, okay, I'm writing jokes. Oh, but my son is going to see this. How's he going to react? So just having a kid makes you reconsider things and the way you're working, you know, the kind of stuff you do. I know a lot of people who are big into horror movies as young people, as soon as they have kids, they're like, I can't watch them. can't watch the, the horror films anymore because I, I just think of my kids. <laughs> you just have a few minutes left of your time. I know you're busy diving back into the, you know production over there at Pixar, but I want to ask you for, typically we ask somebody for a homework assignment, but I think with you, you have such a fascination with flip books. Maybe oh, yeah. you just describe that. And I know that there's like on YouTube, there's a thing where you talk about flip books. So maybe just talk about the power of the flip book as a active thing you can do right away. And then I can send them to, to watch. Yeah, no, I love flip books. Uh, as a kid, I was, you know, there's always that kid in your class who draws dragons and, you know, horses and stuff. And you're like, whoa, that's so great. I was not that kid. I wanted to be that kid, but I struggled to draw. And then I discovered the idea of flip books, which is basically, Every drawing is a little different, and then you flip through them, you know, in the corners of your math book or whatever, and uh, it looks like it's moving. And it was the movement that got me. That's what got me. Um, and so I started making them on my own. And at first, it was just like a little line uncurls, and then it turns into a star, just kind of, you know, blah. But um, then I think almost by accident, I did this one where this guy is in a boat. And he takes a drill and he drills a hole in the bottom and the boat sinks. And people are like, that's funny. I'm like, oh, wait, what? They're reacting to this. So I really started understanding uh, a, an audience reaction and starting to tell stories and tell jokes. I mean, it wasn't really very funny, but it was just kind of surprising and bizarre. But it kind of got me going towards, I understand, or I'm trying to still, what is it that's going to get a reaction from an audience? It's not just movement. It's not just... Uh, you know, bizarre. It's got to have some meaning, some surprise or, or a joke. So I've been, I, I kind of think of the flip books uh, in the same way where it's a little bit of a joke. So you're setting things up and then hopefully there's a little punchline at the end. And it's amazing to me still because it's a bunch of, it's like, you know, seven cents of paper in your hands and you flip through it and it's alive. Right. And, and all you, know, you we, need, right. All you need is a bull clip, a little yep. pad of paper or even yep. post-it notes, right? Those usually yeah. work a little book of post-it notes and a pen yep. and you're in business. So people can't so say, Oh, I don't do. have the money to dream this stuff up. Right. You don't need, right. you don't need nothing. Yeah. Yep. You can do it at home. I have a big bucket full of ones that, uh, 
that I did as a kid, and I still try to do them every Christmas. You saw, I, I received those uh, Christmas flip books, and they're amazing. And my son looks forward. He's like, oh, is oh, that cool. a flip book? Like he runs up, gets a bull <laughs> clip, puts it on the paper, and, you know, yeah. watches it over and over. So it's cool. your, your audience is responding. Okay, good. <laughs> once once good. this whole Pixar thing doesn't work out and you open your flip, book, flip bookstore, book. right? <laughs> and the people and go I'll to really the, be, the Pete really be doctor, in the money there. Right? Yeah. Pete doctor, presidential library of flip books, you know. <laughs> so another area, I'm just going to squeeze in a couple of things while I okay. can, is color. The importance and power of color mm. creating emotion in scenes. I, I happened to see a Pixar book a couple of years ago, maybe a year or so ago, where all the pages showed colors and show a scene from it. And it really it struck me as how how much work that can do for you as along with music. So maybe just talk about the power of color. Yeah, I think color, like well, pretty much anything you have at your disposal can have an effect on the way you're telling the story. So, no, and again, it kind of comes to back to nothing by accident. Like, you know, we make intentional choices about sound design about uh the speed uh and color is a huge thing that's almost subliminal you know kind of like music where if it's really working you're so caught up in the story you're not really paying attention to the music but it's just adding this deep layer of of emotion to things um but um it's it it's also strange like i'm not sure some of it is what hardwired and some of it is learned you know it, it's even in doing, so just as an example, you know, when we were coming up with Inside Out, we thought, okay, we want these emotions to be a broad range of colors. Let's choose colors based on um, what we think of, uh, what we associate with that emotion. So anger, pretty easy, red. For some reason, I think that was pretty universal as we talked to people around the world. Everybody thinks of red equals anger, probably because we turn red, you know, so it's a very uh, one-to-one. Right. It's very hot. Yeah, disgust was a little bit more cultural. Like in in America, green is disgust, but in some cultures, it's nature and it's beauty. And so that was that was like more of a cultural thing. Anyway, I'm not sure this is really where you were were going with that question, but it, it's a super loaded tool that you have in your tool belt to really consider uh, the way it's going to have. How are you going to get the audience feeling? Well, I mean, it, it has as much of an impact when you pick the color of your baby room. Like people aren't painting their baby rooms black yeah. or or dark purple. Uh, I, I mean, I do. Although think- they probably should, because I've read that like babies don't really see subtle values. So this whole pastel thing, it's probably all lost on babies. They like black and white, just okay. strong contrast. All right, black walls for the baby room, and there then investors for the Nazi coffee shop. Okay. <laughs> These are going to go down in history as a conversation that we may have to edit. But um, oh yes, you were talking earlier about writer's block. I was going to ask you, Pat, because a lot of people will come to me and like, what do you do when you get writer's block? And I would think, I don't get writer's block. I can always think of something more. It's just crappy. That's the thing. Crappy's not a bad place to be in writer's block because okay. I'm serious in that, you know, when you're in writer's block, you, you benefit more by volume than uh, by quality. <laughs> yeah because you're still doing your craft right yeah it's the stopping that causes real writer's block mm. so if you if your well dries up do you stare into the well or do you dig another well you have to do some work mm-hmm. to find the next part of the journey right so if you get lost in a walk which you and i have done remember we were somewhere oh, up yeah. in the mountains of the adirondacks and we thought oh we're all smart we've got our cell phones with us and we Try to, that, there's no path. There's no, it's like, 
you're lost, right? It didn't even, so we had to make our way down, but you have to keep moving, right? Yeah, if you just stop, you're not going to get home. <laughs> but, that, but I think people don't realize that that's primarily what writer's block is, you know? It, and, and I'm not saying that, that you, you come out of it with brilliance one way or the other, but, you know, if you're lost in the wilderness, you either head towards some a high ground where you can see what you're, you need to find, or mm-hmm. you head towards a river where you can get in and head to civilization. Like there's some compass in your head that says surviving re- requires me heading towards something. Yeah. It turns night. And so you make a fire, right? You uh, automatically things come from action and being proactive. I think there's like a big difference between p- people sort of the, the perfectionist puts people into a judgment mode. And when they, if you start in creation, with a editor in your head, that's bad. That's bad. You have to put a certain amount of clay on the potter's wheel before you decide if it's a a vase or a lamp or a bowl, and then you shape it and then you feel it. And organically these things, it's a birthing process, right? It's not not easy. No. And you're right. The, The process of judging and creating are two separate things and you can't do both at the same time. You can't, you have to stop the judging just do a bunch of stuff. Then you step out and go like, oh, that sucks. Or that's that's actually really good. But you can't do them both at the same time. The judge is very important later on. Like when you're doing a rewrite, you have to be ruthless. You have to, you're trying to write a bulletproof piece of material. And so you're just going to have to, you know, tighten it up, right? Ratchet yep. it down and get rid of the crap. There's no way around it. But yep. I found that some of the best essays or commentaries or other things, I you generally wrote a bigger story and about Christmas, about something. And I was like, oh, no, it's about eggnog. It's really, there it is. The kernel's right there. Eggnog is good for only a certain period of time. It all goes bad on New Year's Day. That's the day they take it off the shelf, take it to the back of the store, relabel it buttermilk, and parade it back to the dairy section. It all became about eggnog and less about Christmas, right? And why you can't have it on 4th of July if you want it. But I had to write about a whole memory to find what it was like we're really having a problem here but that particular thing would never have come is my point yep yep so uh, and i guess you're you're on a journey with your new movie soul which i'm Mm. like crazy excited about this you know the premise is very interesting at the moment in the trailer that i that i've seen um where this guy's after his life goal and bam he gets hit by a truck i mean that's like that's a really tragic life crisis and you you turn it into a very powerful decision and a, a moment for he, the, he doesn't let that stop him just because no. he's dead he's not going to stop that's my so, point you got to keep moving right. forward <laughs> uh, but but I, I if you're whatever you're able to share about that thought process because you lived in it while you were making the movie is yeah is where i think a lot of people are right now about what is my future in light of the way the world is changing right so the pandemic has caused a pause. What are your priorities? What do you really want? What is your passion project? So, yeah, and I think one of the things that uh, we're all fall, fall prey to is the idea that this external accomplishment is going to solve all my problems. If I just get X, then all my life's going to fall into place. And you know what? It doesn't. It doesn't happen. Even when we do accomplish these wonderful things, it's nice. For a minute, and then all your problems come back. And so that's really the thing that I was looking at in that film is like, what is 
I'm going to say it. What is the meaning of life? What am I trying to do with my time, the limited time I have on this planet? Hopefully presented in a funny way that five-year-olds will like. You know, that's what we're trying to do with the movie. So, But you have other passion projects. I know you're working on the, the book about Disney's great animators that you have great reverence for and homage to. Well, actually, a lot of them have been written about. The Nine Old Men. Sorry, you're going to get me going on this. But the directors, nobody knows anything. If I ask you who directed Snow White, no idea. So who directed Bambi? You've seen all these movies. No idea who the director is. You can name like all the Hitchcock films and all the John Ford films, but nobody understands how those guys worked and what they did. And so I'm going to try to unpack that, which is maybe not too interesting to some people, but I'm finding it fascinating, maybe because it, it's amazing to me how little has changed over, you know, 80 years that well, uh, entertainment, you know, the same problems existed in 1920 that we're dealing with here today in 2020. I think people will be fascinated when that book is finished. And I think you'll be surprised how many people it impacts. Their legacy has led to you and your legacy will lead to many others. So I'm, I'm grateful for your time today, uh, investing your creative spirit and your knowledge. And it, it's really a treat for me to have this conversation. Likewise, it was a lot of fun. Oh, I, I, I like it a lot. And we didn't touch anything. We didn't touch all the creative cocktail mixing. And I know, we'll you know, come back. I, we'd love to have you back. So on behalf yeah. of my producer, Amanda Rosenberg, and myself, thank you, Pete Doctor, for giving us a, a prescription to laugh. Thank you both. <laughs> Cheers. All right. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and you will always have an invitation to join us for more creative conversations that offer a spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative under Whizbang producer Amanda Rosenberg with editing by soundsmith Casey Franco. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp. Please feel free to reach out with your input or to share a review through social media on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityandcaptivity.fun. That's right, it's dot fun because dot com is not fun. Cheers. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage, a circus of uncertainty. Your call.